0: To this podcast of Neonatal Conversations. This podcast has been created to improve understanding for neonatal and paediatric trainees, nursing and medical colleagues, and anyone who is interested in becoming more familiar with our boutique area of medicine. My name is Kath Carmo, and I am a neonatal intensive care specialist in Sydney, Australia. My practice is in the Grace Centre for Newborn Intensive Care and in the neonatal retrieval team as the Deputy Director of NETS New South Wales. Today my conversation is with Dr. Eleanor Cavazzoni, a paediatric intensivist at the Children's Hospital at Westmead in Sydney, and we will be discussing the use of extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, or ECMO, in the neonate. Eleanor has a wealth of experience in supporting and assessing critically ill newborns who might require ECMO. So welcome, Eleanor. Thank you, Cass, for inviting me onto your podcast. Great. So I'm glad I don't have to say corporeal again, ECMO is much easier. But can I start off, Eleanor, by just asking you, how did you first come to medicine? What inspired you? And how did you end up in paediatric intensive care?
1: Oh, Cal, thank you very much for um, asking me that question. It takes me back a couple of years. Um, I um, originally wanted to become a vet uh, in high (laughs) high school. I... uh, (laughs) <laughs> I was very much set on um, actually being a mammalian vet, um, sorry, a mammalian ocean vet. So, um, but obviously having to go through vet school, I, I kind of needed to do the standard vet practice. And I found out at the age of 16 that I actually have an anaphylactic reaction to cats. Oh, no. um, and so um, I kind of spoke to a couple of vets and they they all kind of said that although I wanted to go into aquatic mammals as a career, uh, the reality was that it was going to be pretty hard to do vet school mm. with anaphylaxis to cats. Um, and so I remember I was sat, because uh, I went to the UK, I did my medical school in the UK and I was sat down applying for my UCAS, which was the university application at the time, and kind of thinking. Shall I apply for vet school or should I just go for medicine? And I landed on medicine and I wanted to be a surgeon. So I actually started off my medical career uh, wanting to be a surgeon. And it was in my fourth year at medical school that I did my pediatrics rotation. I did one week at the uh, neonatal unit in Sheffield where I went to university and basically was fascinated by what clinicians were doing, um, saving these tiny little newborns. And so I did a PhD in, the, in neonatology. And then um, from that point, I was dead set in becoming a neonatologist. Uh, and then in 2005, I came to Australia, and I bumped into the pediatric intensive care community uh, led by Bruce Lister in Brisbane. Um, mm. And basically my love for Intensive care changed from neonates to to the older child, but still the child. And so I did um, the fellowship, the College of Intensive Care Medicine fellowship, and um, I really haven't looked back since.
0: Hmm. So it's interesting that actually, any regrets about not doing surgery?
1: Uh, look, I, I think um, intensive care um, has the ability to still provide very um, high, uh, like very rapid decision-making, some mm. very um, kind of on-the-spot decision, yet at the same time, it also provides a um, kind of a diversity of pathologies that you actually come across. So mm. um, although I kind of every now and again think, oh, you know, as a pediatric surgeon, because uh, it was actually pediatric surgery that I that I was interested in doing, um, you know, what kind of pediatric surgeon would, I, would have I been, I still think that I, that ultimately I've made the right decision because every day when I go to work, I still thoroughly um, enjoy and I'm humbled by being able to, you know, walk with these families of critically ill children. And so it is, um, I still feel very strongly that, um, that I've made the right decision
0: by pursuing a career in, in pediatric intensive care. Mm. I didn't think you'd be the type to regret any decision you make. <laughs> um, so,, Elle, generally in neonatology in New South Wales, we don't have much experience with ECMO. So can you firstly explain to us how the treatment works and how it might help babies, and what sort of babies should be referred for ECMO assessment?
1: so I think um I think the first and most important thing is that ECMO. Is really the the kind of the final stages of critical care support that we can provide. Um, It is effectively um, kind of removing uh, blood from the venous side. It is oxygenating that blood and then returning it back into the circulation. And where we return the blood, the oxygenated oxygenated blood back into the circulation, defines what type of ECMO strategy that we have. Um, so, uh, we have venous venous ECMO, which is basically removing desaturated blood from the circulation. We oxygenate this blood and then with the pump, we send, place this blood back into the system and we can put it back into the venous system. So that's venous venous ECMO, or also known as VV ECMA, or we can take the blood out of the desaturated component, which is the venous circulation. We oxygenate it, bypass both the lungs and the heart and return it back into the arterial system of the patient. And that would be VA-ecbone. So um, the two, the indications to go on to one or to the other um, are really kind of dependent on the pathology that uh, Mm. you're faced with. And so for newborns, uh, typical pathologies that you might have is severe respiratory failure, secondary to meconium aspiration. Uh, You might have a pneumonia sepsis kind of picture, severe pneumonia sepsis kind of picture uh, that might kind of trigger a persistent pulmonary hypertension or PPHN in the newborn. Uh, You could have congenital diaphragmatic hernia where the ventilation of your patient is so bad or so ineffective or your concern about causing lung damage is so high that you place these patients onto ECMA. Um, prior to their surgery. Um, And then obviously you have the patients that have surgery, cardiac surgery, and they might come back post-operatively from the operating suite. um, And they're on ECMO to allow the heart to kind of rest as it recovers Mm. uh, from the insult of bypass. So those are the typical reasons why we place neonates onto ECMO.
0: Right. And so if you're a neonatologist and you're in a a perinatal centre, so not located with a children's hospital, when, when you're looking after your meconium aspiration or your baby with PPHN, when in that pathway, care pathway, do you think um, the neonatologist should be picking up the phone to talk to an ECMO centre?
1: So um, I think the first and the really important thing about ECMO and guidelines of placing onto ECMO or not placing onto ECMO are not clear-cut. There isn't that once you reach this limit or once you reach this level, uh, ECMO is deployed. Um, And the Extracorporeal Life Support Organization, also known as ELSO, uh, published in 2020 Pediatric Respiratory ELSO guidelines. Mm. And I think it is... um, I think the the principles behind it are far more important than when to call. So the principles of, you know, the neonatologist who is trying their absolute utmost to ensure that the ventilation strategy that you have is the best ventilation strategy to mitigate or minimize any further lung damage, at the same time maintaining adequate kind of, um saturations for the patient to ensure that you don't start getting end-organ dysfunction is kind of the the fine balance that we're talking about. And so I think it is important to consider ECMO when a patient who a pathology is considered re- reversible mm. and when ECMO poses less risk um, than providing kind of standard therapy. And I think it needs to be, um, kind of a patient based assessment. So not a protocol based assessment, but keeping your patient, the patient that you have in front of you in focus, it needs to have the institutional experience that you're referring to, uh, the expert consensus and the consultation with all the teams. And that includes the neonatologist who's at the bed space, who knows that patient the best. At that point in time, at the point when the, the call is made out. So although I'm not providing hard and fast kind of guidance on when to call, I think an neonatologist an who feels that actually they're starting to enter into realms of ventilation where more damage might be being done than not, that is probably the point when to pick up the phone and to say, I think we're running into risks um, of, you know, not being able to, to maintain, uh, I guess, the best outcome for this patient. Mm.
0: So I guess it's babies with severe lung disease or sepsis and babies with reversible conditions, so not usually for babies who are known to be encephalopathic or with severe lung hypoplasia or inoperable yeah. cardiac disease. And, and who do we involve in these multidisciplinary discussions? Like who, who makes these decisions?
1: so i think if you go back to the patient who you you described who's in a, is in a tertiary neonatal unit who's got a significant pathology there is a neonatal expertise at the bed space the neonatologists feel that they are actually reaching the maximum ventilatory therapy that they think um really should be administered and that beyond this level more damage more harm would be done so at this point there needs to be consideration of transfer so how do we get this child out of this unit that can't provide that doesn't normally provide institutionally, doesn't provide ECMI, to an institution that does and so in that conversation you need to have the bedside neonatologist, you need to have the retrieval team you need to have the pediatric intensivist that will then be delivering who will be accepting the patient into their care. Um, and you will, we, um, we will need the cardiothoracic team that will then need to cannulate the patient to start the therapy, to start the ECMO therapy. And so I think a collaboration between all these uh, team members are um, really important and really clear kind of understanding of the trajectory of this patient, mm. if the patient's had any cardiac arrests, during their course up until this point if they have had cardiac arrest how significant have they had a head ultrasound scan is there any evidence of bleed because we need to remember that extracorporeal or ECMO actually anti-co- fully anticoagulates the patient mm. so a patient who has even a small bleed and small intraventricular bleed could end up with a catastrophic intraventricular bleed and Therefore, might not be eligible because of that pathology, because of their their neurological pathology.
0: Mm. So it is interesting. Um, you mentioned earlier about um, congenital diaphragmatic hernia, and our experience, certainly in our hospital, is has been that um, our surgeons to date haven't often considered the pathology is reversible. So even though we do ECMO assessments, um, we don't use a lot of ECMO in that group of patients. And actually that still is a really helpful conversation to have because then you know you haven't got that as an option. so you just optimise all your ventilation and your inotropic support for that patient. and you know we have managed to um, get them through. So I think these multidisciplinary collaborative conversations are really helpful.
1: And, and again, I think it's how the institutional experience uses ECMO. Yeah. So for certain maybe institution, institutions, they use ECMO as their preoperative management for mm. severe congenital deformatic hernia. Mm. But if we're going to use ECMO on a patient who's actually faz- failing maximal therapy, the problem is... That if we use ECMO in the patient who's failing maximal conventional therapy, the likelihood is that they might have um, an underlying pathology that is actually um, so severe that their outcome will actually be poor, irrespective of what ECMO can provide and can support. Mm. So I think it is really important that that assessment occurs with all the team players, with all the members of the, of the proviso of care and that everybody comes to that conversation with their expert skill and then a decision is made in what is the best interest for that patient, what is the best outcome for
0: that patient. Mm. So I've seen babies go on to ECMO and I can certainly see the seductive nature of it. You can have devastatingly low oxygenation or oxygen saturations, and they, once you're cannulated and you're going through the membrane oxygenator, the the saturations rise immediately to the high 90s to 100. So I can totally understand the paediatric intensivist's enthusiasm for ECMO. But do you think we're getting it right in optimising our sub-ECMO intensive care first and then referring the patient? It might seem a little bit controversial, but there has been some commentary around, certainly in our building, that when ECMO is readily available, um, clinicians put patients on too early and we are losing the art of good ventilation and inotropes. What are your thoughts around that?
1: Uh, Look, I think... um, I, I. Certainly, I can only speak for the institutions where I've practiced. And I think there is, um, I think when we place a patient on ECMO, there is always um, a, a bit of a pause and reflect moment. Are we truly doing the right thing for the patients? Um, and have we optimized? And a lot of times you actually have a couple of clinicians that come to the bed space to kind of assess and make sure that everything is optimized. Um, If you look at the international literature, we actually know that referral to an ECMO center, um, this is data from the adult world, actually um, transferring over a patient for ECMO to an ECMO center actually decreases the number of patients going on to ECMO. So what does that mean? It probably means that just referring a patient from one unit to another and to have a different mental model or a different ventilatory strategy or also just um coming together and reassessing the patient decreases the likelihood of the patient going on to ECMO. and this was the outcome of the caesar trial which was run in uh the uk Ooh. so i this is adult data it's not pediatric data so i i don't I would, although I don't have any strong pediatric evidence to refute that argument, I I would say that from an anecdotal perspective and from the adult literature, um, the art of ventilation and the art of good inotropic management actually comes hand in hand with a referral to an ECMO centre.
0: Hmm. So, Elle, are there any downsides to ECMO? So what are the neurodevelopmental outcomes for patients? In my PhD work, I looked at blood flows in critically ill newborn babies. So I can see how ECMO flows might affect cerebral perfusion. So how how are we going with that? And are we getting better at ensuring steady perfusion of the neonatal brain during ECMO treatment?
1: So I I think the... You know the the area of neurodevelopment, and are we providing the best blood flow to the brain of these infants and neonates is is a constant challenge. Um, depending on what kind of therapy you've instituted, whether or not it's BV or VA ECMO, I think it's always uh, it's always a good idea to monitor the. Um, saturations that are going to the brain of the neonate. So always ensuring that you have a SATS probe on the right hand of the patient, possibly have the nears probe that gives you an indication of your tissue saturations, both in the head and on the um, kind of the back of your neonate. Um, And I think it's, I think it's important to constantly reassess and the ability to Assess the neurological um, kind of uh, examination of your patient. So not have a patient that is constantly muscle relaxed or heavily, heavily sedated. And mm-hmm. use the neurologist team to come in and provide expertise. And maybe if you do need to uh, heavily sedate a muscle relaxed the patient, then potentially use EEGs to monitor the electrical activity of your, of your neonate so um I think the the evidence from the literature and the been publications in the last couple of years in twenty sixteen and there's been also a publication in twenty nineteen by the Netherlands group in association with Great Ormond Street, which actually states that um there there does um there does there there is a need to focus on the long term outcomes after ECMO uh, particularly for the small infant, and to pick up any deficits that potentially we might see and therefore provide um, interventions to maximise the potential neurological outcome
0: uh, of these children. Mm. And certainly in our institution, I think our, our nursing team are really leading the way with ensuring that we provide really good neurodevelopmental care for these babies. And I think being aware of... Um, what we're doing in the brain perfusion, as you say, with all that monitoring is, um, is probably going to tweak things to improve in the future. I think from my reading of the literature, it's really difficult often to tease out the effects of such severe illness from the actual ECMO effect. Um, but we all know that there are some young children and I know I've seen some young kids come out of your unit and young adults who seem to have survived periods on ECMO And they come out apparently unscathed. And so we don't want to discredit ECMO as support, but it is an important consideration out these neurodevelopmental concerns. Um, And it does seem to me that we should be following up these newborns and older children as well, I suppose, until the end of at least primary school to ensure they're getting the support they need to succeed as best they can.
1: I think I think, um, Kath, you've actually identified there. It's not that these children have gross deficits. They actually have mild cognitive deficits, mm. and because they're mild, they potentially can fly under the radar. And that is the most concerning part. That if you just do a gross assessment, like do they, can they uh, attend to themselves and daily functions? Can they walk? Can they talk? they the they probably score relatively well on those kind of assessments but it's more about their spatial awareness their um learning abilities their the the subtleties in their cognitive abilities that actually the paper uh, a paper from uh 2016 Indicates that they can grow into their teenage years with these subtle deficits and if not picked up If not allowed to be the best that they can be with the support provided by Occupational therapy speech pathology and various other team members uh, Then they actually have a harder um, I guess schooling life Um, than if they're picked up and actually plugged into a system that can
0: support them. Mm. Mm. So now instituting ECMO in the neonate um, requires the coming together of different teams and streams of care, so the neonatal intensive care team, the paediatric intensive care team and the cardiothoracic team. So how do you see us all working better together to ensure that our care for neonates is the best that we can deliver?
1: So I think the first and most important point is to recognize that each craft has got their unique um, set of expertise. They've got their unique set of um, tools um, uh, and knowledge that they bring to the table. And I think the best way that we can provide patient-centered care is by ensuring that we all, every single one of the craft group, Come together with their skill set, with their expertise, and are able to collaboratively focus on the patient's need um, and what they need right now, rather than focusing, um, let's say, our conversations around the institutions or around our units. So as in, you know, a pediatric intensive care unit does a certain thing, and the neonatal intensive care unit does another thing. Um, if we can harness the expertise from each one of these units and utilise that expertise to manage the patient, and I think that requires respect.
0: Mm. Um,
1: respect from all team members. Uh, that all team members actually have um, something really important to 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 add to the care of this patient. Um, we need to ensure that that respect is then transferred into a collaborative decision making. And that collaborative decision making also involves the family member. Yes. Um, and I think actually consenting a family to initiating ECMO is is quite a complex thing. Because a lot of times we initiate ECMO and the family are in duress. They they are seeing their child who's critically unwell and that potentially without this therapy, they might die. So the, the actual idea of um, true consent, as in the family are able to weigh the risk and the benefit, mm. is, is a very tricky conversation to have. And it's actually a conversation that requires a lot of finesse. Because which family will say to you, I don't want you to do everything to save my child's life? The majority of family will give you a positive, yes, please do everything you can to save my child's life, but at what risk and at what cost? And I think the risk and the cost is part of that conversation, and it's part of that conversation um, where the clinician kind of does need to explore a bit um, where the family's ethics lie or kind of you know what do they want what is what is this what are their greatest concerns for their child um and how can we mitigate those greatest concerns and constant conversations honest conversations with the family are also really important throughout the ecmo run so not just starting it but actually continuing it and then coming off ecmo either because the patient's pathology is resolved or coming off ECMO because actually the pathology has not resolved or there is no potential resolution of their pathology.
0: Mm. So it's really complex then. In New South Wales, um, we're about to launch our ability to provide ECMO at remote sites and move the patient on ECMO. Um, I guess part of that consent process is going to be um, down to the team who were on the ground prior to launching an ECMO team. So it's probably really important um, that we all get talking about this more often so that the neonatal, neonatal group um, team members can provide that level of um, counselling for the families to help them make that informed consent.
1: And again, I think it's really important that that, that the, neon, the neonatal um, the neonatal group don't feel that the that counseling has to sit completely on their shoulders. They will be part of the team that will come and counsel the family. And it, it, I think in medicine, we have this great ability to actually slow time down. You know, we actually have the ability to provide conversations to families, although there is, you know, we're extraordinarily time pressured And the reality is we need to crack on and carry on doing things if we are going to do things. Mm. But actually allowing the family a bubble of space, a moment to understand exactly what we're telling them and giving them the opportunity to ask us questions, I think is really important. So ensuring that we transfer our understanding of the clinical situation to the family and so that the family have a true understanding of what's happening to their child mm. is number 1 and then number 2 what are the options and what are the risks of these options and then number 3 understanding what are the families what are the what is the family willing to accept as a risk for their child and i and i think that those conversations do take time in a time poor situation, but we can create that time by kind of parallel conversations. You know, there is one team that is that is doing one thing, as the other team is actually setting up the conversation with the family and exploring things as are as things are happening.
0: So, yeah, so again, I'm thinking, I'm the thinking, the collaborative approach. Yeah, as as sort of um, deputy director of NETS, I'm thinking actually um, that's great thinking on your behalf in that we've got a team launching to go and do what we think needs to happen but then we could um in a parallel set up a a, even a conversation via um telemedicine or virtual zoom etc um where the family can actually see an intensivist and have that conversation as the other as the team's launching to go on perhaps undertake the ECMO retrieval. I think that'll be a really helpful addition to our um, practice, actually. So, um, yeah, thanks for that. It's been really um, a great leap for New South Wales to um, have this capability unfold, and um, we really appreciate all the efforts that have gone into um, making this possibility of ECMO in transport a reality for the children of New South Wales because we've got a quite a large geographic area that we deal with. Mm. So, Eleanor, now, before I finish, I have a couple of questions that I ask everyone. Firstly, where would you like to see the research go next and how can we improve things for babies and their families who are in need of ECMO?
1: So, (laughs) thank you, (laughs) Kath, for that question. I I think, um, you know, our conversation before about the long-term outcomes for patients particularly small children um on ECMO I think is is actually a really important um aspect of what we do. I think we've moved we're moving more and more away from just looking at hard mortality outcomes and we're going more mm. into finessing our uh treatment strategy to mitigate morbidity and um I think the assessment of patients and making sure that patients are, um, are properly supported, um, in the post ECMO phase is critical. What do I mean by that? I mean, uh, that not that all children that have ECMO instituted on them, Um, have neurodevelopmental outcome assessments are plugged into resources, the neurologists, the neurodevelopmental assessment, to ensure that they can have interventions early on. And then there is a feedback loop of risk stratification, so that particular characteristics of patients with certain diseases that do less well, are then placed back into a feedback loop and so that we learn from our experience. Um, Mm. I think that would be great to have that as part of our standard practice um, internationally and not just because I do appreciate that in in New South Wales we have really good follow-up particularly for neonates but I think from an international perspective that I think would be really uh, really great.
0: Yeah, so there's lots to do there on looking at our outcomes from a research point of view. Um, <clears throat> okay. So the second question I ask all my podcastees is, can I ask you, how do you think gender has affected your career and your family life? And do you think we could be doing better in that regard?
1: Um, so th- this is a question that um, has been asked of me couple of times. Um, I have to say um, that my gender has never really come, has never felt like a barrier in my career. Um, I work, I, I, I became a pediatric intensivist in 2010. And um, I can honestly say I've always felt extraordinarily supported by my colleagues. Um, And my colleagues have, up until recently, the vast majority of them have been male colleagues. Mm. Um, Can we do better? I think the area of intensive care, any form of intensive care, neonatal intensive care, pediatric, adult intensive care, requires a degree of sacrifice. Uh, We provide care 24-7, 365 days a year. That is what we do as a group of clinicians because critical care doesn't happen in hours it happens around the clock 365 days a year um so we think i think as we as any person as a as a man or a woman who goes into so irrespective of your gender if you go into critical care um you need to be cognizant of that that it will take it will take uh, part of your life. Mm. Um, and that's just what it is. Um, I have been extraordinarily blessed. I have a great husband, two two daughters, and I can only do what I do because of the support of uh, my husband. Or better, I could probably still do it even without the support of my husband. I would just need to find support elsewhere. Um, but I know that my kids are safe. I know that they're happy because they're when I'm not there, they're in their dad's very capable hand. So, so I guess um, I don't know if I'm a- answering your question very elegantly, but personally, my gender has never felt like a barrier to my career. Uh, and I've always felt extraordinarily supported as a staff specialist in the last 11 years of working
0: clinically. Hmm, that's very refreshing to hear, I guess, um, from our institution. That's great. Um, So thanks, Eleanor, for being such an inspiring colleague. You're always clear, clever and importantly kind and supportive on retrieval calls and clearly have the patient's best interests at the centre of everything you do. Thank you so much for the work you do every day to make the lives of children better and thanks for having a neonatal conversation with me today.
1: Thank you very much, Kath.
0: If you have enjoyed this podcast or have questions, please head to the webpage www.neonatalconversations.com where there are links to the references used in this podcast and where we might be able to continue the discussion. You can also leave feedback or commentary on Facebook, Neonatal Conversations, or on Twitter at Neo Conversation. We would really appreciate any feedback you might have. Thanks so much for listening and thank you all for caring for the critically ill newborn.